Father, thank you this morning once more for who you are. We know that all that you have done and all that you've revealed to us in your mighty works and deeds are only the manifestation of what you really are and who you really are. Oh, Father, thank you that you enabled poor creatures like ourselves to know you and to learn that the bottom line in describing you is a simple word called love. Thank you, Father, for loving me. Thank you for loving the world, but especially for loving me. And thank you for enabling me to understand this, to lay hold of it, to find the reality of it. For indeed, to know you is to know life eternal, to find the secret of this mortal life, and the secret of eternity. Thank you now, Father, for the Holy Spirit who was so faithful to take us by the hand and enlighten us and lead us until we came to that place where we were so enlightened and so enabled that we found ourselves believing by a gift of faith that was not our own, but came by the purest kind of grace from Thee, and believing the record which You have given of Your Son placed us in that Son made us joint heirs with him and your children forever. And how shall we ever thank you for the manifestation of yourself in the Lord Jesus, <clears throat> this precious Son of Man and Son of God, with whom we can so wonderfully and really relate, with the confidence and the assurance that God also relates to us for this blessed mediator who sees both sides is able to explain to our hearts the mysteries of your will and purposes in us and explain to your heart the frailties and infirmities of our own flesh. Thank you that we've been brought to you by Jesus Christ. And now as we look to thy word, we are helpless for the work that's set before us this morning, for what needs to be done is our hearts open and the ears of our hearts unplugged so we can hear, the eyes of our hearts open so we can see, and the understanding of our heart so open that we can grasp the miracle and the mystery of your love. No man can do this, no words can do it, no eloquence can do it, no knowledge can do it. Only the Holy Spirit can do this. And so we pray that preaching will be in the power and in the demonstration of this blessed one who delights in doing these very things. And may each of us go down from this place seeing no man save Jesus only. All oh, delivers from man worship delivers from putting our attention upon man, help us to realize in this moment that Jesus will minister to every sheep who's needy and who will look to him alone. Bless the heart of this poor man who stands before them 
We stand in need. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I'd like to read a passage of Scripture in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. And if you have your Bible or your New Testament, I'd like for you to follow with me at verse 31. It's the closing part of this 8th chapter. And as you read with me in your hearts, do what I'm going to do, and that is to take the inclusive pronouns out and put the personal pronouns in because I can't get anything out of these us's and we's. I have to put me in there. And this is the only way I get anything from my own heart out of the Word. I have to appropriate it for myself. God has to be saying something to me. And he's saying something to me. I know that all of us are included in what he's saying, but he's talking personally to me. And he's talking personally to you. I want you to read with me verse 31, where Paul says, What shall I then say to these things? If God be for me, who can be against me? He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for me, how shall he not with him also freely give me all things? Who shall lay anything to me, or to the charge of God's elect, or to my charge? It is God that has already justified me. Who is he that would dare to condemn me? Why, Christ himself died for me. And much more than that, he's risen for me. And even now, he's at the right hand of God for me. And even now, he's making intercession for me. Who then, not what, who, who then shall separate me from this love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, and we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in every one of these things I am unconquerable. But this is only through him that loved me. And I stand persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing, or any other created thing, shall be able to separate me from the love of God. And this love which God has for me has been revealed to me in Christ Jesus. And this love which he has for me is in Christ Jesus. And this love that I've known from God is mine in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Isn't that a wonderful passage? I preach on this because it met the need of my heart. And I think that that's the secret of true preaching, is to share with others what meets the need of your own heart. Because we're all one in the body of Christ, what meets the need of my heart will meet the need of yours. We may have brought different problems to this hall, and different circumstances in life, and different feelings due to the weaknesses of our 
different kind and unique flesh which all of us carry about. None of us brought a need. None of us have a question. None of us have a hurt. They can't be met by the Lord Jesus. And he who has met my need will also meet yours this morning. Now, something precious about this passage that I want to comment on first of all, and that is that it doesn't sound too much like the confession or the testimony of modern-day Christians. I've been thinking all week long about the early-day saints, the first-century Christians, those early believers, and how different they seem to be when I read the Bible from most of the Christians that I know today. I had a dream a couple of weeks ago. I don't dream too often, but I did have a dream a couple of weeks ago, and I dreamed I was standing out on the sidewalk in front of the Union Hall, and uh, 10 or 15 of the saints were standing out there on the sidewalk, and I could see their faces. It won't do to name them, but some, some of you who are here this morning were in that group, and you were standing there, and you were waiting for the hall to open. You were waiting for the meeting to begin. And my, I've never seen such joy and such enthusiasm and such anxiety. And you were saying things like, we just couldn't wait to be here and to hear about Jesus. And, and the, the obvious thing of the dream was, was the, the great and the real joy that you were expressing. And when I woke up, I was crying, because I find that generally that isn't true. And I wondered what's wrong with the joy and the enthusiasm of the saints. And I thought, well, the times are difficult. These are trying times, difficult days, and we're living surely in a in a very special dispensation where the power of Satan ha has never been as manifest as it is now. The saints are in hard places, and I know some of the hard places some of you are in. And I thought, well, this must be the reason for it. And then I began to think about the New Testament saints, and the Holy Spirit asked me this question, were, were the days easy for these early believers? They were difficult. They were terrible days, perilous times for them. And so I went back and I began to listen to some of these early believers, I'm sure, personified by this one man, Paul, who was a pattern to all who would afterward believe. And I look at this man's life, <clears throat> and I hear him make this confession here at the end of the 8th chapter, and it is so filled with confidence, so filled with a holy boldness, and it just so reeks of joy that there is almost a sanctified arrogance about the whole thing that he says. This man is such a conqueror. This man is so triumphant. This man is so much on top of his circumstances. The only way I can describe this confession he makes is that he is going bear hunting with a switch. He's not afraid of man nor beast, past, present, nor future. And it's not a grim gritting of the teeth and enduring what he doesn't like. There is a holy joy about what he says here. 
And that brings me down to the bottom line, and that is that what he confessed here was absolutely real to him, and he believed what he said, and was totally and completely persuaded, not in his head, but in his heart once and forever, and there wasn't even a doubt lingering as to whether any of these things he said were true or they were not. His life was difficult. He describes himself, and he describes all the saints. Every believer who ever lived can be described this way, for the sake of Jesus. Every saint is killed all the day long, and as far as the world is concerned, he is reckoned good for nothing but the slaughter. It has never changed, and it never will change, from the very first believer to the very last believer. This is a description of his life. He lives his life in a hostile world. He lives his life where principalities and powers are dedicated to his destruction. He lives his life where every kind of strategy is employed against him to bring him to the same slaughter that the Lord Jesus was brought to many years ago. They have smitten the shepherd already. And as the sheep scatter over the four corners of the earth and down through the years of time, they are pursued, hunted, hated, persecuted, reviled, and slain like poor dumb sheep, without a thought for their feelings, without a thought for their welfare, but with a savage, bitter, revengeful, purposeful heart, Satan through the world system, through the unbelievers, make life a continual peril for the Christian hasn't changed, not in 19 centuries. And it was the same with Paul. I won't take the time to read Paul's experiences. You may read them. Most of them are in 2 Corinthians 11, where he begins to enumerate the things that have happened to him. He sums them all up in Romans 8, and he says all of these sufferings, they're nothing. They're absolutely nothing compared to the glory that should be revealed to us. Sure, I've been shipwrecked. Of course, I've been stoned. Look at the scars on my body. I've been beaten. I don't have a friend, not even one who will stand with me when I'm on trial for my life, he writes. Of course, my brethren have turned away from me, my family forsaken me. Of course, I've lost everything in this world, my wealth, my name, my reputation, my esteem, my place. Of course, I'm an outcast among my own people, and they look upon me as the garbage of the world. They say I'm fit to be put on the stage like a spectacle and stared at. Of course, my health is gone. So what? I've triumphed over all of it. I'm unconquerable. I'm victorious, 
And above all, if Paul were here to finish this, he would say, and I want to kid you not, I'm joyful about the whole thing. I haven't lost anything. Everything I've lost is done. I've gained everything. And what I've gained is the excellency of this one thing I've come to know, Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something. That's something to, to shout about every now and then. Something to talk about every now and then. That's good news. But it's only good news to the believer, and it's only good news to those in whose life and in whose heart the Lord Jesus Christ is real. Paul had a secret, a secret that carried him over the waves of distress and persecution and tribulation and anguish of soul. He could spend a night in the, and a day in the deep. He could be hungry. He could be naked. He could be pursued. He could be chained and shackled and beaten and slain, finally, with the edge of Nero's sword. But there was one thing they could not do to him. They couldn't conquer him. They couldn't put him down. They couldn't overcome him. They couldn't gain a victory over him. Every time they knocked him down, they turned around and he was standing again. He stood when he didn't want to stand. He stood when he wasn't able to stand. But every time he went down, God made him to stand. And he stood. Doesn't sound like some of the weak-kneed, lily-livered Christians that I know today who are always down because their neighbors said a bad word about them or because they hit their finger with the hammer and it's sore or because they might get laid off for a couple of days and they don't know what in the world they're going to do. Always down, always depressed, always discouraged, always disappointed. No reality, nothing. Miseryville, that's where most of us live. Miseryville. Listen to this man. Off he lived in the king's palace, drove around the Rolls Royce and wrote checks for a couple of thousand dollars a day, stayed in the Sheraton hotels and went to the French Riviera for his vacation, surrounded by friends, held in high esteem by his society, then his words would be meaningless to me. This little crippled, half-blind, half-beaten-to-death man this little despised man whose speech, even by the believers, was called contemptible, and whose bodily presence was so weak that they just wished he wouldn't bother to show up. This little man, who, generally speaking, didn't have a friend on this earth, stands up, as it were, and I like this, and he calls the whole world, including Satan and all of the principalities and powers of the air, out to the O.K. Corral for a shootout. He said, now I'm calling you out. And here's the challenge. Who's against me? Who condemns me? Who accuses me? Who with all of your devices, with all of your strategy, can divorce me from my lover, Jesus Christ. I'll answer all of you. God is for me. I hope you fare as well. 
but God is for me. Isn't that good news? Isn't it? God is for me. What a statement. <laughs> oh, the dumb, stupid, religious people in this world, they go around saying, I'm on God's side. Because they always are convinced that God needs their help. I'm not on God's side. And I'm not for God. I was born into this world against Him. I was born into this world opposed to Him. I was born into this world His avowed energy, en enemy by nature. I was born into this world despising Him with everything I had to despise anything with. I was not on His side. I was not for Him. I am not on His side, and I am not for Him now. Not by nature. But there's one thing I want to repeat. He is for me. I didn't choose Him. He chose me. I didn't decide to join His cause. He joined mine. I didn't enlist Him. He enlisted me. I don't serve God. He serves me. I don't do anything for God, but He does everything for me. God is for me. What a statement. This doesn't simply mean that He, he takes up my part when I'm in trouble or fights for me when I'm in battle, though He does all of these things. This doesn't mean that he approves of everything that I do and agrees with everything that I say just because he's for me. When it says God is for me, it is an expression of his eternal attitude toward me. From before the foundation of the world, he made up his mind when they were choosing upsides up there in the eternal council halls of God. God said, I'm on that man's side. And nobody and no thing in my created universe is going to change that. I'm for him win, lose, or draw. I'm for him good, bad, and indifferent. I'm for him now before the world begins, and I'll be for him while the world stands, and I'll be for him when the world stands no more. I pledge myself to this man. Now, good news? God is for me. You know, sometimes I get ready to preach. I wonder, what am I going to preach about? Everything I say, I've said before, God says, that's all right. I've been saying the same thing for years. And I was thinking about asking, I was asking the Lord, what do you, what do you want me to tell these people? And he gave me this phrase, God is for me. And he said, do you realize that everything that I have ever revealed to man is summed up in this one statement? God is for me. Keep saying it for yourself now this morning while I say it for me. Will you? God is for me. Everything he's revealed about himself just shouts this thing. God is for me. Everything in the Old Testament says God is for me. Everything in the New Testament says God is for me. Everything in the book of Romans 
is a summary of all God is and all God has said in the whole book of Romans could be summarized right here in this one statement, God is for me. The, the fact that God's fixed intention, God's eternal will, God's everlasting attitude towards me is this. I am for you. It's been on my heart for some time because I was sharing with the folks down in Charleston the other night how uh, several years ago when I was learning about grace, because boy, it takes some learning. Grace is something so foreign to me, my nature. Grace is something so far removed from my thinking. Something for nothing. For an unworthy, undeserving, hell-deserving creature like me is, so, is a principle I can't hardly grasp. I can't hardly get hold of. So grace takes a lot of learning, and that's the reason the Scriptures talks about us growing in grace. Grace doesn't get any bigger, but our comprehension of it gets bigger. And years ago, when my comprehension of grace wasn't too big, every time some little thing happened in my life that I didn't like, every time some little hurt came along, every time some little disappointment presented itself, every time some little discouragement or some little opposition or some little cloud the size of a man's hand arose in my life, the first thing that came out of my poor, ignorant heart was, what is God doing to me? What's he doing to me? Why does he do this to me? And as I began to grow in my comprehension of grace, all oh, the Lord so tenderly told me, I'm not doing anything to you. I never have done anything to you. Everything I had to do to you, I did to your substitute when he died for you. Every stripe that you deserved he bear upon his blessed back. Every smiting that you had coming, he took his blessed face for the marks of it. All of the rejection you so rightly deserve, he bore. I will never do anything to you, never. I will never punish you. I will never whip you. I will never hurt you. I will never afflict you. I will never do anything to you that's evil or bad or hurts. You say, well, I've had lots of things in my life that hurts, but God didn't do them to you. And as I grew a little bit in my comprehension of grace, I quit saying, Lord, what are you doing to me? And I started to think this way. Maybe the Lord isn't doing anything to me. Maybe he's doing something through me. <laughs> and I thought that was a rather elevated thought. I thought, well, I don't mind suffering then. I don't mind being hurt. I don't mind having bad things come into my life if God's doing something through me. You know, and I used to hear all these silly things from the religious world about... Uh, I have to suffer and I have to hurt and, 
and, and I have to experience bad times so my unsaved neighbor over there uh, can get saved. And somehow I didn't like that too well. I just didn't like the idea of God beating on me. Some unsaved neighbor could get saved, and I didn't even like that neighbor. I really didn't care whether he went to hell or not, and I despised the idea of God beating on me to do something for him. I kind of felt like God was using me like an old punching bag, whipping me around so he could do something through me. And as I began to think a little more on grace, I thought, that can't be it. He's not doing anything to me. And all of the pressures and the tribulations and the hurts and the rough places in life are not just simply so he can do something through me. Maybe he's really doing something in me. And as my comprehension of grace grew, I even abandoned that plateau. Because all that God has done for me is finished. I am now, this moment, while I speak to you, glorified. And I am this very moment seated at the right hand of my Father in perfection. I am at this moment as blameless, as perfect as Jesus Christ himself. And I am this moment so covered, so clothed with a perfect righteousness who is Christ himself, the Scriptures report that God now looks at me with a searching, penetrating gaze and answers, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I find no fault in him. So I thought, well, what's God doing in me? I tell you, the religious world lies a lot, you know. And they always told me God was, you know, changing my bad nature. And he was doctoring the flesh up and making it more righteous every day. And I was getting more godly day by day. And I should look in the mirror every morning and say, I'm more Christ-like today than I was yesterday. I'm not a bit more Christ-like today than I was 30 years ago. I'm not a bit more godly today than I was 30 years ago when God justified me. He justified me ungodly and unchristlike and unrighteous and unjust. And I, by nature, will remain that way until the day Simon is decently buried and put away forever in hell where he deserves. And only Peter, a stone will stand in the temple of God for his glory and praise. Isn't that good news? I ain't getting any better. I'm getting worse. You know why I'm getting worse? Because every day as I see more and more of grace and I see more and more of what righteousness truly is and I see more and more of what God's holiness really is, I see more and more of what he meant and what I am when he said, You are unrighteous, ungodly, depraved, ruined, corrupted, spoiled, and rotten. And there's no good thing in you now. There never will be any good thing in you. The only good thing that's in me today as I stand here is God in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ.
So I gave up on that idea of God was doing something in me because he didn't seem to get it done, whatever it was. And just recently he's been telling me this over and over and over again. Oh, someday you'll see. All things have been done for you. For you. Not to you. Not through you. Not in you. For you. All things work together for good to them. All things. All things. Does that include everything? How do you spell all? A. L. L. When you stub your toe. Good. When you break your arm. Good. When you get laid off. Good. When your neighbors hate you. Good. When you're sick. Good. When you're well. Good. All is for you. God is for you. All that God is, the Creator, the Almighty, the Supreme, the upholder of everything that is being upheld, and the energizer of everything that's energized. This God, all that He is and all that He has at His disposal, which includes all power in heaven and in earth, all of it is channeled and all of it is geared and all of it is programmed for me. The sun shines for me. The moon comes out at night for me. The stars light up for me. The rain comes for me. The grass grows for me. The birds sing for me. The mountains are beautiful for me. The trees bloom and blossom for me. The flowers, their fragrance is for me. Wars and rumors of wars, kingdoms and nations, the uprisings of governments, the rise and fall of kings to their throne. It's all for me. The peanut king is not running this country. God is running it. The United Nations is not running this world. God is running it. And he's running all of it for me. God is for me. Everything he does in his normal day's work is for me. Whether he dispatches an army of angels to help an ant up Mount Sinai with a grain of sand, or whether he sends one heavy-handed angel to wield his sword in some world war being carried on in some far-flung country or continent. He does it for me. That's some kind of knowledge of God, I'm trying to impress you. God is for me. And I'm glad that he's on my side. Because most of the time I'm convinced there ain't nobody else on my side. And me and God, we make what? A majority. We're enough. We're team. He's on my side. Me and him, we beat Cincinnati Reds. We do anything. And the nice part about it is, he does it all. God is for me. 
His fixed intention. Let me repeat. His eternal attitude. His everlasting will and the bent of that will which stems from his heart is to dedicate all that he is, to dedicate all that he has, and to arrange his programs, his strategy, and his acts for me. He is for me. Now, the challenge. Paul is standing at the OK Corral. I can see him standing there. His legs are spread apart like all gunfighters. And his thumbs are hooked in his belt. And he's kind of fondling that 44 on one side. And he says, now God is with me and God is for me. Who's against me? Come out. Who is against me? I take on all comers one at a time, all the time. No matter. Who's against me? But before you draw on me, I want to tell you why I am so sure of this and why I am persuaded of it in my heart and why I can be so arrogant and cocky in standing here boasting that God's for me. I'll tell you how I know this because you've got to know this. You can't think it. You can't say it. You have to know it. That's why he ends up saying, I'm persuaded. And before I get to that part, let me just throw this in. Being persuaded, that's a heart word. Anybody can know Bible facts. All you have to do is read them, you know them. Anybody can accumulate Bible knowledge. All you have to do is read the black words on the white page and you've got it. But all oh, that's a far piece removed from being persuaded in the heart by the Holy Spirit until the doubts are gone. That's a fur piece from being assured, as Paul wrote in another epistle by our Lord Jesus Christ, that these things be true. That's a far piece from having an unshakable, unchangeable, undeniable assurance that this is a fact and it's settled forever. God's for me. Now, I don't know this because God told me in the Bible that he was for me. And I don't know this because some preacher told me he was for me. I've got to have a little more than that. Here's how I know God is for me. And here's how Paul knew that God was for him. Come with me. And we go back to the only place where such assurance can be rooted and grounded. And it's at the cross of Calvary where Jesus died for me. And you go back there, my brethren, and here's what you see. You see God sparing not His own Son because of me. You see God delivering Him up for me. You see God absolutely refusing to change His mind about being for me, though it cost Him His Son. You see, God standing adamant at the cross, though heaven and earth is beseeching him as the thieves did, come down from that cross, and God standing determined, God standing unshakable, God saying, I'm for that man, and if my son dies, he dies, and if he's delivered up, he's delivered up, but I'll not spare him, and I'll not treat him leniently, and I'll do him no favors. 
because I am for that man. You know who that man is? That's me. That's how I know it. God spared not his own son for me. The phrase spared not is to treat leniently. It says then, God refused to treat the Lord Jesus, his own precious son, leniently. He refused to do him any favors. When Jesus Christ died, God was on the throne. Not a throne of grace, a throne of judgment. A mercy seat that hadn't been turned into a mercy seat. An altar that hadn't been sprinkled. And there before God at that throne were the broken tables of the law. I broke them, not Moses. I broke them, not Israel. God sat down on his throne of judgment that day and said, The time has come. The day of reckoning is here. The hour of judgment has arrived. Now all mankind stand before me. For the wages of your sin is death. Your soul, that soul that has sinned, it shall surely die. And lo and behold, at the judgment of God at the cross of Calvary, not mankind comes now, but the Son of Man who comes to answer for all, who says they are not appearing in court this day, but I am appearing in their place, who says they have not answered your summons, but I have answered that summons in their stead. God looks down and says, but it's my own beloved Son. But it's my only begotten. You are the apple of my eye. You are the joy of my heart. You are my eternal love. And here this son stands and says, I stand in the place of that man. Do with me what you will. Do with me what you must. But I stand for him. I'm for him. God says, I can't treat you leniently. I can't be easy on you. Every lash he deserves, you will get. And every wave of judgment that should flow over you, over him, should flow over you. The knife and the sword will take your life. The knife will slay you and the fire will burn you. And the outer darkness will claim you and hell will be your place of abode. You stand for this man and I'll damn you just as surely as he were standing there. You take this man's responsibility and I'll banish you from my presence just as surely as I would banish him. My hand will be as heavy as though he were standing there. And I'll remember every iniquity and every sin and every transgression as the lash falls upon your back. My hand will be as heavy as though he were standing there. And I'll remember every iniquity and every sin and every transgression as the lash falls upon your back. And that's what Calvary was. 
God refused to spare him. God refused to deal leniently with him. Do you know why? Why? Because he's for me. Because had he dealt with him leniently, had he spared him in any way, he could not have spared me. He could not have dealt with me as leniently as he has. And how leniently has he dealt with me? All of grace. All of grace. Not a single lash has ever fallen on my back. Not a single grief or sorrow that he has not already borne. Not a sin, not an iniquity, not a transgression has been charged to me. Not a condemnation, not an accusation. He is for me and I am his. And never shall we be divorced. We're married and glued to each other for all eternity. This is how I know he's for me. He let Jesus die. This is how I know he's for me. He never raised a hand to save him. This is how I know he's for me. When he went into the outer darkness, cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God didn't even answer him. I'll tell you how I know he's for me. He let his son descend into the deepest pit and covered him up with the darkness of eternity. I'll tell you how I know he's for me. He is for me because he couldn't leave his soul in hell nor let this Holy One see corruption, but raised Him from the dead. And do you know why He raised Him from the dead? For His sake? Oh, the Scriptures say it was for my sake. Raised again for my justification. Do you know why I know He's for me? He let Him die. Do you know why I know He's for me? He couldn't let Him stay there. He raised Him for me. Do you know how I know He's for me? He opened heaven and received Him to His bosom. Because he wanted to receive me. He seated him at his right hand that he might seat me there. He accepted him to the glory that he might accept me there. He gave him a name which is above every name. That he might give me a name that will last throughout eternity. I am his beloved. How do I know God is for me? He spared him not. Only four times I find this in the New Testament. Peter says in his second epistle that God spared not the angels that sinned. Remember reading that? These were the holy angels in an eternity past who left their first estate, who followed Satan in his rebellion. God refused to spare them. These holy creatures who once for an eternity stood in his presence and sang his praises. These holy beings, these mysterious creatures who spent an eternity crying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. When they followed Satan in his rebellion, God said, I won't spare a single one of them. And Peter said he cast them down to Tartarus, down to Zophus, down to the deepest part of gloom and misery, into the lost abyss of hell. And he chained them up there. And they're still there, and they will be there until Jesus sits on the great white throne and they're brought out to hear his final rejection forever. Not a one of them will be saved. No grace has ever reached the fallen angels. And he said he refused to spare... The people of Noah's time, God stood by and never moved 
while a whole civilization went down the tube in Noah's flood. He watched men, women, boys and girls and little babies floating lifelessly on the waters of a worldwide judgment. He said, I'm sorry I made them. They're getting what they deserved. I warned them my spirit will no longer strive with them. And the God who does everything right brought a righteous and just judgment to his creatures. He wouldn't spare Sodom. So Peter reports, though Abraham pled, Abraham pled for 50 souls, but 50 souls weren't saved. Abraham pled for 20. He pled for 10. He pre prayed and begged God to just save a few. Who was spared? Lot and his two daughters and Lot's wife and the whole city went down in the flames of a righteous judgment. Israel, God's beloved, God's wife, Jehovah's wife of many long years, to whom he had made all innumerable promises, in whom he had placed his name and his glory and his purposes. He spared Israel not, for the day that Israel turned their backs on the Lord Jesus Christ, God took the pruning knife and cut them from the true vine and cast them aside and picked up poor, wretched, miserable creatures, us Gentiles, and graft us into that vine. God was not moved by mercy when he dealt with his people he was not moved by mercy when he dealt with Sodom. He was not moved by mercy when he dealt with Noah's time, nor was he moved by mercy in that eternal judgment when angels fled from his presence and hid themselves in the darkness of hell to escape his wrath. Nor did he find himself moved by mercy at the cross of Calvary. There was no mercy offered to Jesus. No grace reached him. No heavenly voice said, Spare the child. Let no harm come to him. Like that voice interceded for Abraham when Isaac lay bound across the altar at Mount Moriah. No hand held back the knife. No voice stopped the fire. When Jesus stood in my place, God said, You take your stand and stand for him. I'm for him, and I killed him just as surely as if that sinner were standing there in front of me. And he killed him. Read the Bible. The Jews didn't kill him. Romans didn't kill him. The world didn't kill him. God slew him. God slew him, and it pleased him to do it because of this wonderful thing here. And I can't read too much into it because there's more in it than I'll ever be able to read out of it. It just says God is for me. This is how I know it. I don't know it because the sun shines, and I don't know it because the birds sing, and I don't know it because the flowers bloom, and I don't know it because things go well for me in life or go badly or whatever. I know that he's for me because Jesus died for me, and God let him die for me. I know that he's for me, for he spared not his own son, but delivered him up. And that's a judicial term which means to let go, to stop protecting him.
and to turn him over to the executioner for the carrying out of a just sentence. And God not only spared him not, that's what he didn't do, this is what he did do, he took his hands off, he quit protecting him, and he said, he's yours. And the sentence was carried out, but the sentence, you see, was mine. And God let him do this, because God's for me. God let him do this, because God loves me. God let him do this, because he internally, eternally intended to be for me. Those simple words have a hold of my heart this morning. He is for me. He let go of him in heaven and delivered him up to Bethlehem. Pardon my little boy language. But God the Father took his own blessed Son to the door of heaven and kissed him goodbye and sent him away, divided unto him his living, and let him come to this far country and spend it all at the cross, not in riotous living, in awful death. God gave him up from heaven, from his own bosom, from his own presence and his own joy. And he gave him up to a manger. And he gave him up to 33 years of ridicule and rejection. He gave him up to 33 years of anguish and pain. He gave him up to 33 years of loneliness and carrying the sorrows of a human race. He gave him up to the agony of Gethsemane the hideous revelation of the cup which contained the sins he must bear in his own body on a tree, and God gave him up to be stripped naked and to be beaten black and blue until he no longer resembled a man, to be nailed to a wooden cross, to be speared with a soldier's spear, to be crowned with a crown of thorns, to be beaten with a lash. God gave him up. God let go of him. God turned his back. God refused to help. God refused to intercede, so we hear him again. Why, oh, why, my God, have you forsaken me? And if he had answered him, he would have answered him this way, because I am for him. I hate to say this because it sounds irreligious, but it is a solemn fact. When Jesus died, God was not on his side. He was on mine. He chose me over his son at the cross. Do you get the implication of that? Did he not? Am I reading anything in the Scriptures? He chose me over his son. He let his son die, but he let me live. He let his son go to hell, but he let me go to heaven. God's for me. And he chose me with an eternal purpose that can't be changed won't be changed. If there was any doubt, if there was any question, if there was any thought that his eternal intention could have been changed toward me, it would have happened the day Jesus looked up into heaven and said, My God, my God, where are you when I need you? 
That's when God would have changed his mind. That's when God would have changed his intention. That's when God's purposes would have come to nothing. That's when God would have said it seemed like a good idea at the time. But I can't go through with it. But he did go through with it. And it's history. And Jesus died and descended into the deep, was buried and carried away from heaven for me, and raised again and seated at the right hand as God's eternal evidence that he's for me then, now, and forever. That's worth saying, isn't it? He was delivered for my offenses, and he was raised again for my justification, and now let us go on with the shootout at the OK Corral. Now that I've called you out, now that I've challenged you, who can be against me? God is for me. And this God who could not withhold his heart will never be able to withhold his hand in my behalf. This God who gave up the treasure of his heart in giving this treasure to me freely, he has assured me that he will freely give me all things. And the all things that he will freely give me will be good, and they'll be for me, for me. Here you see, Paul says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for me, how shall he not with him also freely give me all things? Here's the way of salvation. How did I arrive at this enviable place? By the freest kind of grace. Did I ask him for Jesus? No, but he freely gave him to me. Did I ask him to send his son down from heaven? No, but he did freely. Freely implies that there was no cause in me. I hadn't deserved it. I didn't merit it. I didn't earn it. I couldn't claim it. I couldn't demand it of him. He freely gave me the Lord Jesus for openers. He freely gave me the greatest and most wonderful thing he possessed himself. And oh man, when you get a man's heart, you got his pocketbook. When a man gives you what's down in his heart, the things that are in his hand go without saying. They belong to you, don't they? God gave me his heart first shot. God gave me his heart the first gift. God gave me his beloved son. Said, here it's all of God. It's everything of God. He's yours. Then I stand around and wonder if he's going to do something to me. Or if he's going to fail to do something for me. Then I stand around and wonder why these bad things have come from God in my life. I say after the opening act, wherein God revealed his true intention towards me, I should never have a question the rest of my life about him ever freely giving me anything that's for my good and his glory. This settles it. Let's go on with our challenge now. Who's against me? Oh, I see somebody came out. 
Well, I'll hear you out. What charge will you make against me? What charge? What charge? Let's hear it. Oh, Satan. I'll hear you. Make your accusation against me. Plead your charges against the throne of grace. And you know what you'll find out? You'll find out that if you stop long enough, Satan, to read the sign on the bench, the judgment court's done been closed for 1,900 years. Only dealing now with cases of grace. You'll have to take your call someplace else, lawyer. Judge done vacated a bench. What charge will you lay against me? Oh, the scriptures say that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he jolly well is. He's good at his trade, too. He spends all his time. Isn't, don't you imagine he has a miserable existence? Spending all of his time wallering around in the rottenness of us, us poor sinners. Couldn't happen to a nicer snake. Here he is, just like, just like an old snake wallering in a mud flat. Spends all his time just peering around looking for the filthiness and the rottenness and the awfulness that's in all of us. And then making his innumerable accusations. Not only to God, but to us. He can charge me, but he can't make the charges stick. He can make all the accusations he wants to, but they fall through before they go through the process of law. You know, I can accuse any of you of a crime. All I have to do is run down here justice of the peace. And make an accusation. But making an accusation and proving it are two different things. Having you charged and making the charge stick are two different things. Oh, anybody in the heat of anger can run down and have warrants sworn out for someone. But you know, they, they deserve a hearing. And then the judge listens to the evidence and he decides whether it's warranted or not. So Satan can make all the charges he wants to. He knows all about me. And he can bring up all the charges he cares to. And he can plead them all he wants to. But the only problem is there isn't anybody listening. The only people who listen are the saints and the unsaved. Because the, the saints spend a lot of their time listening to him too. You know. They say, yeah, I believe you got a case there, Satan. I believe you're right about that fellow. And the world listens. They say, oh boy, I'm glad to learn that about those Christians. But the important thing is that God doesn't listen. And the reason he doesn't listen is because he's for me. <laughs> you know, you just don't talk to people that's for me. The only people you get in the audience with are the people that's against me. Right? Right? Mm -hmm. Oh, God doesn't hear you. Think how many prayers you wasted this week talking about me. God didn't hear you. Never heard a word you said. If you, could, if you could make it right into heaven today, if you could push the door to the fourth dimension open and stride right into the throne, 
and say, listen here, God, I want to tell you some things about that fellow down in Priest in Union Hall, some things I know to be a fact. God would say, you can't tell me one thing about that man that I do not already know. What is it you want to say about him? Well, he's bad. Oh, you must have the wrong fellow. The fellow I'm thinking about is good. Oh, no, not this guy. He's a rotten sinner. Oh, you must have the wrong person because the fellow I'm thinking about that preaches in Union Hall on 13th Street, he's a righteous man. Oh, now, wait a minute, God. No, now, wait a minute. I will tell you who this fellow is. This is over there in Belper. He's no good. Why, do you know where I saw him the other night? God said, where did you see him? Well, God said, no, you got the wrong fellow. Because the very night you thought you saw him over there, I saw him, and he's sitting right here in the throne. <laughs> I've never seen him anyplace else. He hasn't left my sight since an eternity past. I don't know where you saw him, and I don't know what he did, because he hadn't done anything but sit here and be a joy to me. I glorified this man before the foundation of the world. I'm for him. So why well, you just take your talk someplace else? I don't hear it. You got the wrong man. The reason I know you got the wrong man is because the fellow you're talking about died. This is this is what the Bible teaches. Did you know that? Boy, it'll sure put religion out of business, though. Because religion can't stand this kind of preaching because there ain't nothing to do. And if there's nothing to do, there's nothing to be. And if there's nothing to do and nothing to be, what's all this turmoil about called religion? All there is to do has been done, and all there is to be, I am now. Say, why are you still on this earth? Well, because... I'm just walking around here, enjoying the fact that God's for me, and waiting for Him to put me on display as the everlasting vindication and justification of all His eternal purposes. Satan can't make any charge against me that will stick. The world can't make any charge against me that will stick, and the wonderful thing is I can't make any charge against myself that will stick. And the reason I can't is because God has justified me, and he who justifies me cannot entertain any charges against me because to be justified is to be set free of all charges. He freed me of all charges when he justified me by faith. What faith was it? It was the faith that believed him when he said, there weren't any charges against me anymore. Jesus satisfied them all. All right. We've done away with the chargers. See what we can do with the rams now. The chargers are gone. All right. How about the condemners? All you who delight in condemning me, step forward. Do you know that the only person in the universe who has the right to condemn anybody 
or bring judgment upon anybody is Jesus Christ? Do you know that God Almighty Himself cannot bring judgment upon anybody? For at the cross of Calvary, when Jesus took the sinner's place in judgment, the rights of judgment became His. He who died in your place, He who was punished in your stead, He who was crushed in your behalf, as to Him you will answer now. For He bore your punishment, He bore your judgment, You'll have to answer to him someday, but you'll never answer to God. God's through with the judgment business. He burned his robe up and, and just closed his office and went out of business when the cross of Calvary became history. That's a fact. Boy, it must have been great. He retired after a long, distinguished career of judgment. Man, he judged everything from the bugs on down to the bees and the birds and the people and the whole creation. He judged everything. He was in the judging business from the very beginning. And at the cross of Calvary, he closed the files, shut down his office, descended from the bench. And he said, I'll never sit in judgment again on any human being. I'll never sit in judgment again on any civilization. I'll never sit in judgment on anything again. All judgment is ended as of here today. I'm satisfied. Jesus has satisfied me forever. Now they have to deal with my son. He's taken over my practice. And they'll have to deal with him. You know that he's the only one that can condemn us? Jesus said that all judgment belongs to the Son. How did he get this right? He got it at the cross. When God raised him from the dead, God assured the world that someday they would be judged in righteousness by this man whom he raised from the dead. So, who are you who would condemn me? Let me see the prince of the nails in your hand. Let me see the wound in your side. You condemn me? Oh, only Christ can condemn me. Oh, but I forgot to tell you, he can't because he's already died for me. He condemned himself for me. Now, God can't judge me because he's out of business and Christ will never condemn me because he died for me and nobody can ever charge me because I'm already justified and acquitted from all guilt and every charge, past, present, and future has been canceled, written off the docket, it's gone forever. Case is closed, all over. What are you going to do? Well, don't need to worry about Christ condemning me. He died for me. He's risen again. Do you know where he is at this very moment? At this very moment, he is at the right hand of God interceding for me. The word intercede means intervene. The word pictures to see somebody in trouble and to run to his aid and help him. Jesus lives for me now. So bring on your tribulation and your distress and your persecution and your famine and your nakedness and your peril and your sword. Christ died for me. He's now interceding for me and God has justified me. And I'll tell you this, none of these things, none of these things in the hands of Satan, none of these things in the hands of men, none of these things in the hands of principalities and powers will ever divorce me from my lover, will ever separate me from this precious one who is for me. He's for me. 
Oh, that just, that thrills me. He's for me. <laughs> I, it feels good in my heart. He is for me. I want to get up on top of the building and I want to shout out to the whole world, God's for me. Come on, you people. Do what you will. God's for me. Charge me. Accuse me. Condemn me. Damn me. The only court you'll ever get it done is in the court of your own wretched heart. You can't get it done in heaven, and you can't get it done in my heart. God's for me. Whoopee. That makes me some kind of conqueror. <laughs> In fact, the Greek says it makes me unconquerable. You can't beat me, you can't whip me, you can't defeat me, and you can't destroy me. You can't do anything. Nothing. God's for me. You're fighting a losing battle. You're out of your class. You're taking on too much. You must really be egotistical to think you can whip me and God. You can't do that. Nobody can. God's for me. Well, we cause tribulation to come into your life. We'll be. Thirty-seven times in the New Testament this word is used, always connected with pressure. And the pressure is always connected with Jesus. Thirty-seven times the Holy Spirit reminds the believer that in this world he's going to have a little bit of this pressure. Because this pressure is going to come to him because of Jesus who lives in him. And you can't find me one single solitary saint from day one until now who was ever separated from the love of God in Jesus Christ though they put the pressure on from the beginning until now. The furnace has been seven times hotter than it was wont to be. But God's little people came out of it without the smell of smoke on their garments. Thankful for the experience, for there was Jesus walking around in the midst with them. Heat the furnace up. Do your darndest. make any difference. Well, what about distress? Oh, distress is a word which means anguish. has to do with down inside. Do what you will. Oh, you may work me some anguish. You may make me heavy inside. You may make my heart hurt. You may crush me and stomp on me until my heart feels like it's being ripped out of my chest and I have this anguish. But all the anguish of the world doesn't do a single thing but help me to know how much he loves me and that he's for me. That someday all this anguish of which he takes note will be revealed and manifest for what it really is. To his glory and to his praise. No, Tribulation and distress and persecution, that means to be pursued, and famine, that means to be hungry, and naked means to be without clothes, and peril means to be in jeopardy, it means to be in danger of your very life, and 
even the sword itself, every weapon formed against thee shall not prosper. And every time that verse comes to my remembrance, I think of poor old David. And you remember how Saul slipped in and threw a spear at him? Saul had killed his thousands. He was an expert marksman, but he couldn't hit David across the room. You know why? Because no weapon formed against thee shall prosper. None of these things will ever separate me from the love of Christ, and in all of them I am unconquerable. And therefore I stand persuaded. And let me repeat again, that's a heart word. I am persuaded. It's something I know in my heart. And here's what I know in my heart. Listen. I know every time I look at the cross of Calvary and see that God spared not His own Son but delivered Him up for me, I know that God is for me. And because I know God is for me, I am persuaded in my heart that neither death nor life will have any effect upon me as to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. And it's wonder, is a miracle how we misquote this verse. We always say, neither life nor death. But it doesn't say that. It says, neither death nor life. And I always wonder what the order was reversed for. And it is because man's first natural fear is to die. And because God is for me, death holds no fear. I'm not afraid of death, and that's why I can enjoy life. Because you know what's going to happen when I die? <laughs> God's going to be for me. <laughs> He's going to be for me. He's going to send a car around for me when it's time to go home. Yes, He is. He's going to say to the angels, you know, hitch up the horses. And take my chariot, pick this man up, I'm for him. Bring him right here. Make him to realize now, enable him, open his eyes, give him the understanding so that he can start enjoying where he's always been. That's the reason I'm not afraid to live is because I'm not afraid to die. Death can't separate me. It will only make this blessed union a reality to me. Life, everything in life, makes this union more real than ever before. And all the angels, obviously the fallen angels are referred to here, with all of their strategies and all of their orneriness, can't do anything to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, nor can the principalities and the powers, that's demon spirits, that's all of the spiritual wickedness in high places, that's the occult, that's spiritism, that's uh, uh, voodoo, that's everything that there is in this world of the mind, the soul, the body, everything in this created universe, all the powers that work and the powers that be, all of it together cannot array themselves against me with any effect, for God is for me. And the things that are present, oh, did you ever read that with real meaning? That means today. I don't have to be afraid of today. I don't have to be afraid of the circumstances of the present. 
the place I find myself in now, it will never do anything but make the love of God and Jesus Christ more real to me. I don't be afraid to soar to the heights nor be plunged to the depths. When I feel myself going down, the Holy Spirit reminds me, go on down. Because you'll never go deep enough to get away from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And the deeper you go, the more dimensions of his love you'll learn. And you'll come back with a new appreciation of the love of God in Christ Jesus and the reality that he is for you. He's for you when you're down. He's for you when you're up. He's for you in the present. He's for you in the days to come. He's for you when the principalities and powers array themselves against you. He's for you throughout all of life. He's for you when evil spirits hover over you. And he's for you in the day that you die. He was for you then. He's for you now. And he shall be for you forever. In case there's anything we've left out, there isn't anything, Paul says, in creation itself will have any separating power. Anything that will divorce me from this knowledge. Anything that will take me from this reality. Anything that will blot out of my memory the fact that God is for me. For the cross stands there forever and ever and ever as his everlasting and eternal proof. I brought a poem with me that I want to read to you this morning to close this message. Because it blessed my heart and I don't have any right to hold it back from you. Is God, is God for me? I fear not though all against me rise. I call on Christ my Savior, the host of evil flies. My friend, the Lord Almighty, he who loves me, God, what enemy shall harm me though coming as a flood? I know it. I believe it, and I say it fearlessly, that God, the highest, mightiest, forever loveth me. At all times, in all places, he standeth at my side. He rules the battle fury, the tempest, and the tide. My rock that stands forever is Christ, my righteousness. And there I stand unfearing in everlasting bliss. No earthly thing is needful to this my life from heaven and not of life is worthy save that which Christ hath given Christ all my praise and glory my light most sweet and fair the ship wherein he saileth is scathless everywhere in him I dare be joyful a hero in the war the judgment of the sinner affrighteth me no more there is no condemnation there is no hell for me. The torment and the fire mine eyes shall never see. For me there is no sentence. For me death has no sting. Because the Lord who saved me shall shield me with his wing. Above my soul's dark waters his spirit hovers still. He guards me from all sorrow, from terror, and from ill. In me he works and blesses the life seed that he hath sown. And from him I learn the Abba, that prayer of faith alone. And if in lonely places a fearful child I shrink, he prays the prayer within me 
I cannot ask or think. In deep unspoken language known only to that love who fathoms the heart's mystery from the throne of light above, his spirit to my spirit sweet words of comfort saith, how God the weak one strengthens who leans on him in faith, and how he hath built a city of love and light and song, where the eye at last beholdeth what the heart has loved so long. And there is mine inheritance, my kingly palace home, the leaf may fall and perish, not less the spring will come, as wind and rain of winter are earthly sighs and tears, till the golden summer dawneth of the endless year of years. The world may pass and perish, thou, God, wilt not remove, no hatred of all devils can part me from thy love. No hungry, nor thirsting, no poverty, nor care. No wrath of mighty princes can reach my shelter there. No angel, no heaven, no throne, no power, no might. No love, no tribulation, no danger, fear, or fight. No height, no depth, no creature that has been or can be can drive me from thy bosom or sever me from thee. My heart in joy upleapeth. Grief cannot linger there while singing high in glory amidst the sunshine fair. The source of all my singing is high in heaven.